Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, energy and the environment in the Biden administration. And Richard, we have seen early on in the Biden administration the president moving very aggressively on these issues, on energy, on climate, on renewables, a bit out of character in some sense, not that he was ever against them, but this was never his political calling card in the past. And and I want to start with something we discussed in passing recently. We now have the Biden administration revoking the permit for the Keystone Pipeline. This uh, is not the only one of these projects to be a flashpoint recently. The Dakota Access Pipeline was for a bit too, a few years ago. So let's talk about this in utterly practical terms. For listeners who are not that familiar with America's energy infrastructure, why does this matter? What difference does it make if we're building new pipelines or not? And how real is the danger that environmentalists say projects like these pose? So essentially, the first part of the question is, why do we need pipelines? And then the second part of the question is, what sort of risks to the environment do they impose? And then the ultimate issue is to figure out what kind of compromises you make on how you build them, where you build them, and so forth. Well, I think on the first point, the uh, Keystone Pipeline has always been somewhat controversial. And there is, of course, an economic question as to whether or not the fluctuations in the demand for oil and gas are sufficiently large that the thing is not economic viable. I regard that as a perfectly legitimate inquiry, but I think it's one that ought to be directed to the owners and operators of the particular pipeline. If it turns out it can't support itself with fees, uh, then it will not build it, but if it can, it will. Uh, What makes this extremely unwise from a regulatory point of view is that these energy prices tend to fluctuate. A pipeline is a long-term asset, and so it may well be that you'll have to lose a little bit money in the short run and you'll make it back when Uh, energy sources get tighter and so forth. It is not something that should be taken into account in trying to figure out what the environmental issue is. Uh, The second question that you then have to figure out is exactly what does it do? Well, uh, energy in the United States, it turns out, is an extremely complicated market. There are domestic sources, there are refining issues, and there are imports and exports that have to be taken into account. Uh, If you're thinking about this simply as a matter of strategic power, being able to get any reliable source of energy down to the Gulf where it could be uh, refined and then shipped either overseas to Europe where it would be an offset to the Soviet dominance with their own pipeline or up to the uh, North Atlantic states and to Boston and so forth where it can in fact offset some of the shortages that are created by the constriction of pipelines that are located in New York and Pennsylvania and so forth. What it's going to do is it's going to essentially reduce the prices of energy all the way around and politically what it's going to do is to reduce the amount of dependence uh, that European nations will have to place on that most reliable, quote-unquote, of allies, the Soviet Union, rather the Russians at this point, who have all of this stuff. Uh, The second thing, of course, is that this pipeline is something which involves Canada. Uh, It's been in the works now for at least uh, uh, 11 or 12 years. There have been all sorts of studies about this. When you're running a pipeline and so forth, um, if you think that there's some kind of a danger to it, you have to specify what it is, and leakage of 
natural gas or anything into the environment is very, very low on that list. These things are buried below the ground. They're not manufacturing plants or facilities, which should be regulated, of course, for their various kinds of emissions. And they've run multiple studies on these things. And what you cannot do is to figure out any real contribution that the shipment through a safe pipeline will make to various kinds of environmental harms. In addition, if this stuff is not sent through the Keystone Pipeline, it's not going to lay fallow. Uh, The um, Canadians will find some other way in which to deal with this. It will still be shipped to the United States, but it may go through uh, trains on the one hand or trucks on the other hand, both of which are far more dangerous because when you're shipping energy, the thing you want to do is to have it in a system which is devoted to one and only one purpose so that you could keep it relatively shielded and safe from other kinds of interventions. You start putting this thing on railroad cars and on roads. There can be mishaps of a major source. This stuff is very dangerous and it could flick into the environment. It could cause all sorts of other damages. Trains and uh, uh, trucks are safer now than than they were before, but so are pipelines much safer. And indeed, the dangers associated with these fuels are much less than they were a decade ago because of the incredible improvements that have been made in both the extraction and in the um, basically refinement process. So whatever kinds of difficulties and hardships you could find associated with a dirty Albertan crude in 2011 are largely gone today. If you're trying to figure out how global warming works in the United States under the light-handed Trump administration, uh, there was a greater reduction in carbon dioxide outputs than there was anywhere else in the world, in large part because businesses, not in a way that I always agree with, had made the decision that they were going to have their supply chains be highly sensitive to carbon dioxide. And for any given task, a business which is on top of its own activities is going to do a much better job in achieving any stated goal than a government which has to operate always at a distance. Then, of course, there is the question, is there a climate emergency? And there isn't a climate emergency. Um, You can find all sorts of things that happen, uh, but the most important thing to remember about these things is many of them turn out to be cyclical. And so you can say, oh, there's a melting of the ice in the Arctic, and indeed there is. But there was many meltings of the ice in the Arctic beforehand. Roald Amundsen, he managed to navigate the Arctic uh, uh, by boat in 1908 because there had been sufficient melting at that particular time that he could actually work his way through. There was a recent study in one of the nature affiliates, which said if you start looking at the Antarctic and its basic temperature structure there, it's unchanged in over 70 years, notwithstanding the fact that there's been a monotonic that is a regular inevitable increase in the amount of carbon dioxide that goes into the air, which doesn't translate it. If you think about what carbon dioxide does, yes, it's a greenhouse gas, but it's also absolutely essential for dealing with photosynthesis. And the increase in carbon dioxide is associated with an increase in the greening on the surface of the earth of something about 13%, which is about the size of North and South America. So you're really talking about major, major effects that are systematically ignored in this stuff by people who always say there's some kind of horror. And one of the mistakes that they make just to do it is anytime there's an adverse event, you always treat it as a function of CO2 and global warming. And so when people point to the mess that has taken place in California, nobody talks about the terrible management of public lands, both state and federal. What they do is they attribute it to carbon dioxide instead of to the policies that happen. And one of the reasons you know that this is clearly wrong is if you look at land owned by 
God forbid, a Coke company such as Georgia Pacific, no fire starts on private lands. They all start on state lands because they don't clear away the tender and the underbrush. And what Biden has done, he's basically done two things that he always does. He claims he's only looking at the science and only getting at a crisis. Uh, He looks at the science in a very partial way, and he manufactures a crisis, which you really don't start to see happen. And this is going to start to turn resources in an effort to do wind and solar, which are inherently unreliable. They are not sustainable, um, as it has been said from the beginning of time. When the sun don't shine, you don't get solar energy. And when the wind doesn't blow, you don't get wind energy. And sadly enough, when the sun shines, you often get an abundance of energy that you don't need. And the same thing is true with respect to the wind. That is, since it's not storable, it turns out it's extremely difficult to get the right levels that you need at the right time. There's no thermostat that you could put on these things. And so this is just the first stage in a policy. Everybody goes and starts to say to him, why don't you reconsider this? What about the labor implications and so forth? And what the Biden administration has essentially done is to strong on everybody in opposition and to taint us with this brush that we simply don't understand that the earth is in the balance. This started with Rachel Carson in 1962. She was wrong then about this. The system is much more durable. There are things that you have to worry about. A carbon dioxide isn't on the top of my list. It turns out that there are other things like the nitrous and sulfur oxide, much more dangerous. Dirty coal is much more dangerous than clean coal, even though it has less carbon dioxide. And this whole kind of hysterical attitude by a man who claims to understand science, who doesn't have anything, I think, really intelligent to say about the subject. Uh, There are all sorts of things you want to do in order to deal with the energy system by way of treaks and maybe rethinking, but this isn't one of them. I want to pick up on something that you hinted at there just a a moment ago, Richard. An interesting wrinkle of the Keystone decision is that it gets the president on the wrong side of a group that he's traditionally been very loyal to, which is the labor unions. These there were union jobs attached to Keystone, as there are often to these kinds of projects. And there was an interesting spectacle in the White House briefing room yesterday where John Kerry, who is in this sort of free-floating climate job in the administration, was asked about the costs of these kinds of restrictions in terms of jobs. And he said, well, look, if you're mining coal, for example, you can always go get a job installing solar panels or wind turbines. And, you know, our listeners will remember that Green jobs were a a mantra in the Obama administration. How should we analyze these claims that in addition to their environmental virtues, these are also jobs programs? Well, I mean, a jobs program is one of the most dangerous things that you could ever have. And uh, if you just want to create jobs, it turns out everybody's in favor of it. I'm not in favor of that. And, And let me explain why. A job is a cost. And so if you start to create jobs and they don't produce anything of value, what you do is you pay people wages, but they're coming out of monies from somebody else's product and at the pocket. And at the end of the day, you have nothing to show for it. Uh, so, in fact, uh, you can create all sorts of jobs. And uh, Sheldon, my friend uh, Sherwin Rosen, many, many years ago, long dead, said, you really want to create jobs in the oil industry? What you do is you don't 
dig with wells and the modern equipment, you take a teaspoon and off you go and you get a huge number of jobs digging a useless well. Uh, so you have to do it. The second thing about Kerry, who's no economist, is that, you know, these things are not substitutable. Human people develop capital in a certain industry. It takes a long time to acquire these skills. They're not easily translatable. Uh, so it may well be that somebody is going to be very good at installing social solar panels, but chances are it's not going to be the fellow who did the, the other thing. And so he's going to come out as a loss on these things. And the point is it's a loss of a job which is paid for not by government subsidies, but by private businesses who not only pay him a salary, which he wants, but produce an asset that everybody else is going to value. And if you want to put people into the solar panel stuff, you're going to need the uh, Solyndra-type subsidies on that. And and so it's essentially, as John Kerry is announcing, uh, that make work, which is not accessible, is a substitute for real jobs that produce real kinds of gain. And the Obama administration did this, and now the Biden administration is doing it. And so Biden comes up with one of these rather dubious statements to the effect, oh, every time you're doing the uh, solar energy and the wind energy stuff, you treat them as job creation programs. Uh, but the question is, what kinds of jobs and what kinds of value? So we don't want to say that we should keep this pipeline because it creates jobs. We want to say we should keep this pipeline because it creates jobs that are valuable to the people who are hiring some, so that what you do is you not only get high wages on the one hand, but you also get a decent capital asset, which is a benefit to everybody else on the other side. And what happens is Biden and Kerry, uh, both of them ignore what you produce with the labor, even though that's one half of a very vital equation. Joe Biden made the decision to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. And Richard, as we talked about back at the time that deal was originally struck in the Obama administration, that agreement, as even some of its defenders concede, doesn't do a whole lot. There are no enforcement mechanisms and countries were given sort of a free hand in terms of their pledges. So you had some countries essentially pledging to do what they were already doing. But the argument you will often hear in favor of this and similar proposals is that the real value they present is the leadership they signal on behalf of the United States. And if we lead the way on these kinds of initiatives, then it will make it that much more likely that the rest of the world will follow in getting serious about their carbon issues. What, what's your reaction to that? Uh, I think that's wrong on both points. Yes, you can certainly lead, but are you leading in the right direction or are you leading in the wrong direction? And if you think, as I do, that the Paris uh, Accord of one kind of another uh, turns out to put much too much weight on the carbon reduction issue in the way in which things operate, I don't want the United States to lead in that particular situation. So if you look at the situation with respect to Germany, it's become a complete spectacle. Uh, they're very committed to the notion that wind and solar ought to be primary. So instead of updating their nuclear plant, what they did is they've allowed it to go to seed. They don't do anything else. And so in consequence, what they do is they have the highest energy cost in Europe, and they admit to use soft coal, which emits all sorts of pollution, much of which travels downstream uh, into other parts in southeastern Europe. It's just a terrible solution. Energy prices are high. Everything is unstable. So why would we want to leave that that kind of a parade. We have the same kind of farcical situation taking place in California. And, and Joe Biden's position is what we want to do is to make California national. Uh, they have brownouts, which are rolling back and forth. Uh, they have all sorts of exhortations. They are the classic kind of socialists. They won't let prices adjust so that demand and supply equilibrate. What they try to do in order to shut down consumption is to jawbone in one form or another. And, and Governor Gavin Newsom does exactly that kind of 
of thing. So it turns out you get leadership in the wrong direction. If other people follow you, it just sort of compounds the risk. I mean, you know, for all of Trump's many personal deficits and his own defense of pulling out of Paris was less than ideal, essentially this was correct. The other thing, of course, is that it's a very mysterious kind of thing. There is no obligation, you say, but there is obligations in other sense. There are a lot of transfer formulas that are built into this particular system in which certain countries are supposed to get various kinds of cash transfers from other countries. I do not believe that it was legal for Obama to enter into this thing by an executive agreement. I think it was a treaty, and I think it therefore it required the votes of uh, two-thirds of the senators present in order to be approved. Uh, there is, unfortunately, a real disease now which is taking place, which says that so long as you're willing to let your successor and title overturn what you do, you can do anything you want by an executive order so that the treaty provision just becomes an optional route. You get greater permanence with the treaty, but you could do in the short one whatever you want the other way around. So for four years, we can do it. I do not think that that is the law. I mean, exactly where the line is between a treaty and an executive agreement is not all that clear, but it's certainly not a treaty if what you're trying to do is to lease space in, in, in a foreign country in order to build an embassy. I think you could do that by executive agreement. But this is a major big-time deal, as big as the uh, test ban treaties in 1963, and John Kennedy realized and did get the consent of the Senate in order to do it. So I also think that institutionally uh, this stuff turns out to be a mistake. And one of the things that even the New York Times has finally come to recognize is there's certain things which cannot be done by executive order because what it does is it undermines the very elaborate structures for treaty in the international area and for domestic legislation by allowing the president to act essentially unilaterally without explanation, without hearing. You couldn't do this through the Administrative Procedure Act on something of this magnitude unless you had notice and comment of one kind or another. And so the unilateralism, I think, is a deadly danger uh, to the stability of American institutions. Obama did a lot of this. Trump did some. Less than Obama, I think. He was less of a pen and a phone man. And Obama is basically outstripped now by Biden on this thing. And I think the long-term frightening implications is that he is going to ignore Congress and try to do everything unilaterally with a flurry of executive orders, many of which I think tread on very, very thin ice. So the final question that I'll ask you will be about the other side of that equation, the, the legislative part, because putting the executive orders to one side as a practical matter in Congress Joe Biden is likely to be hemmed in just because of how closely divided the Congress is, and especially on these issues, because one of the most powerful Democrats in the Senate is now Joe Manchin from West Virginia. He's basically the marginal senator and, of course, comes from a coal-producing state. But let's imagine a world in which Democrats have the kind of margins in Congress that they once imagined they might have had coming out of 2020, where Biden can do an awful lot of what he wants legislatively. If the kinds of climate and energy policies he's been touting were to be enacted by statute and have you know some durability, what would that mean for the American economy? What would it mean it, for the environment? It would basically turn California into the exemplar for whatever is done inside the United States. I mean, what happens is the so-called appeal to science and the identification of a crisis, the science is not anything close to what the, the president said. I do not believe that if somebody confronted him with some of the various studies on the other side, uh, that he would be able to give an intelligent answer to any of the things that would go on. And so it would then strangle the energy system. Uh, 
Uh, this would release to all sorts of difficulties. If you recall, um, one of the problems that happened in the Northeast before the COVID thing hit is that there were systematic shutdowns of new businesses because you couldn't get energy into the region. And they were starting to do allocation. And that's because there was something known as the Constitution Pipeline. And the uh, approval of that pipeline was given over to state agencies who had all sorts of totally ridiculous opposition uh, to this thing, and it could never get built. What will happen is those things will start to take place. Remember, the anti-pipeline system is done for a very powerful reason. If you can kill the grid at any one point, you sever the connectability of the whole system, and you can stop production at various sorts of ends. And so when they basically shut down the Atlantic pipeline with all sorts of what I thought totally preposterous objections to this stuff, you start seeing energy shortages going into the southeast and growing cases like Florida. Uh, So this pipeline stuff is absolutely critical. You don't need new pipelines in every sense. You could rejigger old pipelines and improve their productivity with more modern techniques. But in the end, you have to be able to build to support this. And to understand what's going on, one has to remember that on every relevant dimension, fracking is a much more efficient system today uh, than it was 10 years ago. One of the things that's really instructive is you look at the projections that people made in 2010 to what the mix of energy would be in 2020. And what they did is they kind of had coal holding its own against everything else. Well, even if you don't regulate it, it's so inefficient in many places relative to other forms of energy that the amount of this stuff that was used dropped in 50% during this particular time. And there was this huge makeup with the natural gas, which is a much cleaner and more effective fuel. It's not zero. Uh, But when people start to say that wind and solar essentially have no adverse side effects, they ignore the noise pollution. Uh, They ignore, in many cases, the concentration of light is extremely dangerous. They ignore the disposal problem that's associated with building these elaborate situations. And they ignore the fact that most of the equipment that you need to do for this has to be built with petroleum products. It's another one of these silly mistakes that people make is they think that only thing that petroleum creates um, is gasoline, when of course it doesn't. Uh, it creates all sorts of other chemicals and minerals, plastics and synthetics, medicines and so forth. And, and there is just a kind of a persistent know-nothingism about this. I mean, I read the blogs on both sides. It's interesting when you read the sort of the climate yeah, uh, the climate defenders, they give you charts, they give you tables, they give you data in one form or another. When you read somebody like Chuck Schumer or the president, what they do is they give you a homily. And, and it's very, very unnerving to see this. I mean, I am quite happy to believe that there are things that you can do to improve externality controls of one kind or another. Uh, but it turns out, I think, that Biden administration and its entire set of people, one after another, Gina McCarthy, John Kerry, uh, and so forth. Ms. Granholm are all basically on the wrong side of this issue because they are so pre-committed to an outcome that they are simply incapable of doing the thing that they say everybody ought to do, which is to look at the science before you make a decision. This administration may do very well, say, with China and with Russia on some issues, but on the environmental energy front, I think we're basically courting with disaster. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.